Welcome to the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. I'm Danny Horn. Thank you for joining us. Superheroes Everyday is a comedy blog about the history of superhero movies, starting with Superman the Movie in 1978 and telling the story of how superhero blockbusters became the world's most efficient way to painlessly separate money from the public and then give it to entirely the wrong people. On the blog, I'm writing about the movies in release order, but here on the podcast, we'll be covering pivotal moments in superhero movie history. Today, addressing the 2011 prequel, X-Men First Class. Now, I know you've got a busy day ahead of you, so I'm using the Sid Field three-act structure to break up the episode. So this is X-Men First Class Act 1, and then I'll be releasing Act 2 and Act 3 later on in the week. Now I want to introduce my guest, my good friend, Trevor Bolliger. Trevor, welcome to my facility. Hey, thank you. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. The weather is beautiful. It's springtime, so I can't imagine a better activity than watching that's staying indoors dusting off my old blu-rays and popping in x-men first class <laughs> well tell me about when did you first see x-men first class so it came out in june 2011 and i had recently just moved to san francisco and so i actually forget danny there's a very real possibility that we watched this together oh that is possible uh yeah i watched it in theaters in 2011 i remember that were you and were you into x-men at that point so I've never read comic books. I guess that's probably important for the listeners to know <laughs> that like, I'm not going to be able to compare this to like the history or, or whatever. Yeah, but the comics. Back in the early 2000s, you know, the first X-Men movie came out. Was it? So like, I saw those movies. I really enjoyed those movies because I was, you know, like 14 years old. So like the Star Wars prequels, perfect. I was the target audience for that. Right, X-Men yes. target audience. And so it's always been, you know, a lot of bang for your buck. There's a whole bunch of superpowers in there. You're going to have lots of interesting combinations of fight scenes and whatnot. So... Yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed those movies. I still enjoyed this movie. It's far from perfect. So I'm, I'm looking <laughs> yes. forward to discussing it with you today. Before we get going, let's run the numbers. The movie came out in June 2011. There were four superhero films that came out that year. This is a couple years into Marvel Cinematic Universe. So by now we've had Iron Man and we've had Iron Man 2. This year, 2011, there are four films. There's Thor, which was number 10 at the box office for the year, made $181 million. Captain America, a little below that, number 12, 177 million. X-Men First Class, under that, number 17 for the year, made 146 million. And then down at number 24 was Green Lantern, which is 117 million, uh, which means it was considered a flop because we now live in a world where making 117 million dollars is, is considered disappointing. It's amazing. It's 2011. It feels like forever ago because there's four superhero movies that came out. Only one of them just squeaked into the top 10. That is going to change as of next year, 2012, because that's the Avengers year. After that, things get a lot more profitable for superhero movies. Popular that year, number one was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Number two was Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Number three, Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 1. Four, The Hangover Part 2, Five, is Pirates of the Caribbean, On Stranger Tides, there's Fast Five, there's Cars 2. Everything is a sequel that year. This is why we needed superhero movies to come in and save us from the eternal sequels. As far as the reviews go, X-Men actually did the best. On Rotten Tomatoes, X-Men First Class, 86%, with Captain America at 79, Thor at 77, and then Green Lantern at 26. Honestly, that's 26% too much. <laughs> it really is. Let's get into Act One, which begins in a concentration camp. Here's little Eric getting separated from his mom 
at the concentration camp. Very bold to open a, a family fun popcorn movie <laughs> by showing family separation at a concentration camp. He's And he's very upset. He's trying to get back to her. The guards are pulling him away. And he's really like trying to, he's using what he doesn't realize are his magnetic powers to pull the gate open. And the Nazis are investing a lot in this particular kid. It feels like a personnel to victim ratio is just not scalable, really. At a certain point, it's like, you know what? There's a whole bunch of other Jews that we could fuck with. How about let's just let the kid do what he wants. He's not going to get far. It's Treblinka. Where is he going to go? So this is actually the first scene from the first X-Men movie back in 2000. Yes. And they just completely recreated it. So that means Matthew Vaughn, the director of this movie, saw that concentration camp <laughs> in the first one and said, that's so good. I want to make that again. I want to. I want audiences to sit through that experience yet again. Eric's being watched by a spooky Nazi guy uh, drinking tea who has hit the jackpot, as we'll find out. It's exactly the thing that he was hoping to see that day. Yeah, I guess that begs the question. Is he just sitting there hoping that he's going to see some mutant like this? I, I believe that's what he's been doing this whole time. Yeah, he might have spent the entire war so far just looking out the window. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen to Jews, right? Everyone knows that. That's where the, the magic genes are. So he's just kind of standing there and waiting. That's not how I would spend my time, but it, it worked out for him. It totally worked for him, I know. Meanwhile, over in Privileged World, here's little Charles, little baby Charles Xavier, Walking down the stairs in his enormous mansion in the middle of the night, he hears something and grabs a baseball bat. I don't know how tough things get in the hallways of the Xavier mansion, but he apparently needs to pack some weapons. Goes into his kitchen and finds his mother, what he thinks is his mother, going into the fridge, raiding the fridge. Turns out Charles is telepathic. He can just tell this girl, I know you're not my mom because my mom's obnoxious and horrible and you and you're being really nice to me. Which is always how you can tell with rich people. I mean, we never meet the mom character. No, we don't. We've all seen, you know, upstairs, downstairs. We've seen Downton Abbey. We know how terrible some of these people can be. Rich people. Yeah. Oh, they're the worst. Yeah. There's Nazis and then there's rich people. Mm -hmm. This is Raven, who is Jennifer Lawrence, a.k.a. a blue bumpy woman. She can disguise herself as anybody. Once he sees through the mom disguise, she turns back into a blue girl and he is delighted. He says, I always believed I wasn't the only one in the world who was different. And so he's very happy. He says, you're hungry and alone, but you don't have to steal. In fact, you never have to steal again. The specifics of this arrangement are pretty sketchy. I am not sure how he managed to get her a permanent invite to be his new little sister. Yeah, we never see the parents. So I guess... Yeah. I'm inferring that they just don't live there, that he has... Oh, you think he's on his own? I mean, somebody's probably like stocking the refrigerator and cleaning <laughs> the place, but... My theory is that he just hypnotizes them constantly to let him do whatever he wants. I mean, that's totally in line with the Xavier that we see throughout Everything the rest that of the he movie. does. Yeah. He's actually nefarious. Yeah. From the parents' point of view, Life with Little Charles is a horror movie. Luckily, we don't see any of that. And they're all dead by the time he's, what, like 25? Again, unexplained. This movie is very, very preoccupied at times at being an origin story and not actually a good movie. And so I'm somewhat surprised they didn't like go into those nooks and crannies to explain everything. Yeah. Eric has a mom, though, and we are about to see her. Meanwhile, over at Auschwitz, here's Kevin Bacon, Herr Dr. Klaus Schmidt, a mean Nazi man with mean Nazi chocolate who has Eric brought to him, standing in front of him like he is the principal. And he just starts babbling on about genetics and a new future for mankind and evolution. 
Eric really only wants to see his mom. The question of whether a master race is a good idea or not hangs heavy over this movie and is not explicitly resolved. It is one of the very few movies in modern times that leaves the question open about whether it's pro-Nazi or anti-Nazi. The movie definitely has its cake and eats it too. (laughs) And it basically, I mean, by the third act, we'll be talking about how like Kevin Bacon's character is essentially just like a shell that Eric will eventually take his place. And the audience knows, like the audience that's seen the other movies or read it in the comic books knows like, oh, it's it's inevitable. This is what's going to happen in this movie. But the movie also makes you really, really like Eric for two hours. And then it turns him into like, surprise, he's actually kind of a Nazi himself. Right. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's the origin of both the hero and the villain at the same time as a rom-com. And so it does kind of give you... it. Yeah, you're right. It puts some backing behind the villain's point of view, which in this case means you're a Nazi, which is great. Schmidt wants Eric to move a coin. He's got a little German coin sitting on his desk. It is really bugging him, and he wants Eric to do something about it. There is a surprising amount of drama in this movie around coin location. He tells Eric, you got to move that. And Eric tries very hard. There's a lot of like trying very hard acting. Doesn't work. And so Schmidt brings Eric's mom and says, move that coin or I'm going to shoot your mom. Eric tries, but he honestly is not that. He's, it doesn't feel like he's that into it. While his mom is still alive, he cannot really muster up the energy. Yeah. the uh, I mean, he had no problem at all. Like, crimpling those gates when he was separated from his parents. But now that there's... a A countdown clock and a gun being pointed at his mother. He just seems slightly perturbed. Schmidt finally gets tired of this, shoots mom, and that now Eric, now Eric is really into it. He starts screaming and crushing things. There are a couple of Nazis in the room with metal helmets, and he crushes their skulls in the metal helmets. Schmidt is just absolutely delighted. He has the look of a man who didn't wear a metal helmet today. He starts messing with what all the like metal implements that are in the room, lots of shit flying around. Somehow does not turn this against the actual guy who just shot his mom. Do you have any theory on that? Because I'm out. I mean, again, the theory, secret Nazi the whole time. <laughs> That's, you know, a refrigerator moment. Like the, the scene is so cool when you're watching it. I mean, he was, you know, having a tantrum. And so I understand that like, probably wasn't thinking the most straight. He didn't have the most logic going through his head, but I would start with him. Yeah, he he pulled the trigger. After Eric kind of like breaks down and starts to cry, Schmidt puts his hand on Eric's shoulder and is like, cool, okay, now we're partners. Now we're doing this. Like why Eric does not kill Schmidt either right now or at a convenient moment in the very near future is a mystery that is not really resolved. I mean, the only possible explanation is like he's the only person that showed any kindness to him. Well, no, it doesn't count as kindness if you shoot his mom. Like, it is true that when Schmidt was kind of counting down, Eric was like, let's see where he's going with this. We didn't really talk about how this movie got prioritized and developed over X-Men 4 or any other movies. They made X-Men 3. The cast was very old, very expensive. And they're like, okay, let's do origin stories. So they did Origins Wolverine, which made money, but was like panned critically and by the fans. 
And they had a Magneto origin story in the works. So basically what they did is they kind of retrofitted this Magneto origin story to be X-Men first class. And so mm-hmm. that's why the movie kind of at, a, at its heart really just feels like a Charles and Eric origin yes, story. Absolutely. The through line of the movie is those are the best scenes. Whenever you get James McAvoy or, or Fassbender, like that's great. Meanwhile, 20 years later, Charles, grown up, is uh, picking up a girl in a bar. And he is very good at what he's doing right now. Yeah, this movie goes from concentration camp to horny so fast, like unacceptably fast. It is extremely horny and stays horny for a really long time. Far too long, like the entirety of the movie. Yes, exactly. I feel like he's amazing at this. He's kind of looking. James McAvoy is is an attractive man with a very nice voice. He's looking this girl in the eye. He's telling her that that her heterochromia is a mutation, is a very groovy mutation. Basically, they just they want to show we all know from the other films that that this is old Professor Xavier. This is Patrick Stewart. And they want to show that when he was young, that he was different. So he's using the whole concept of mutation to pick up this girl. She's digging it at this point. She wants to reclaim the word mutant. And then there's Jennifer Lawrence, Charles's little sister, kind of. For some reason, do you understand the age difference at this point? He treats her. He says, like, she's getting a Coke. She's not getting a drink. He treats her like his little sister here and everywhere through the movie. And I don't really understand the age difference that well. He reads to her as as she falls asleep. And then when there when there are actual like other teens around, like he kind of leaves her with the kids while he goes off and plays with the adults. She must have been a lot younger. It's hard to tell the age of blue people. It's that is true. (laughs) That's true. And then Eric in Switzerland, he's in Geneva playing with a coin. There's more coin drama. Apparently he is now looking for Schmidt. That is the thing that, that we find out. We don't know what happened between the concentration camp and now, but apparently at some point their relationship went badly. So he goes to a bank. He's talking to this banker because he wants to find Schmidt. And so he's torturing the guy. He uses his magnetic powers to pull a filling out of the guy's tooth and he gets the info which I believe is just the word Argentina. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, he might want to try another tooth because Argentina is a big place and I need to get something closer to an address out of this. I might be giving out some uh, demerits throughout this movie. And I'm gonna, <laughs> I'd like to give up my first demerit to the sound designer for this, the sound effect of the filling being ripped out of the mouth. It just really effectively made my skin crawl. It was just horrible. It is best that he doesn't do that a lot. Then there's Moira McTaggart sitting outside. This is another one of them moments where you realize early on that maybe the movie is a little weird about pretty girls. She's a CIA agent. She's sitting with her partner who we never really care about. They are looking at a casino entrance and they're concerned about something called the Hellfire Club. And they're seeing mob bosses go in and the Italian ambassador and the CEO of Lockheed. And then in walks Colonel Hendry who they never really entirely say who he is. He's, I get, I don't know. He's some kind of very important colonel in the United States Army with a lot of say over where do we, do we put missiles in Turkey or not? He apparently is able to determine that. They're having a very important meeting, we find out, where they are discussing these things. And instead of being there, he's here at a casino hanging out with pretty ladies. Moira sees a bunch of pretty ladies walk in, not wearing a whole bunch of clothes. And she's like, you know what? That sounds like an awesome idea. She takes off all of her clothes and she tells her partner to go pound sand. She's going to go in and infiltrate. There's a lot of lingerie. There's a lot of cleavage. Again, this movie's very corny. 
I think this is also one of the kind of the last dying gasps of quote unquote only boys like superhero movies. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, I guess before this, probably the majority of ticket sales were from young Ben, but yeah. Billion dollars with a B, that's you're you're gonna need more than just young Ben. And you can tell that this movie was made before like Thor and Captain America came out just, you know, a couple months before. So you can tell that the movie was made before anybody saw Thor. Because you see a lot of pretty girls in their underwear, but none of the guys take their shirts off at all. This I have a theory about cinema, which I just developed in the first episode of this podcast, which is Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans in 2011. They made Thor and Captain America, which established new expectations for male torsos in movies. And that was ratified in 2013 with the ridiculously hot Henry Cavill in Man of Steel, at which point every man who even steps onto the set of a superhero movie has got to go to a trainer first for at least six months. And you can tell that this happened before that watershed because Charles doesn't take off his shirt at all. Neither does Eric. We see little Alex, cutie Alex, with a tank top on for five seconds. The, the final battle on the battleship, he loses the circle out of the middle of his shirt. But that's, yeah, just like a fraction. That's not That's not enough. Not enough for me. But... We get to see a whole bunch of girls, including Emma Frost. Here comes January Jones as Emma Frost wearing what she wears. Trevor, describe Emma Frost's outfit for the nice people. Okay, just imagine the least practical swimsuit (laughs) that you could ever, ever find anywhere. (laughs) That's what she's wearing. That's what she's wearing. It's what? It's like a a bra, mostly. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, feathers? Is it the mini skirt? Yeah, she's got everything. She's really not showing a lot of clothes. No, no. It's I, for one, love January Jones in this movie. As naturally you would. Yeah, she's got a particular acting style, which, you know. <laughs> she does have a particular, she does have a particular <laughs> acting style. I completely but, agree. You know, so they were, the producers were thinking like, okay, we need to do a prequel. Let's do the 1960s. What's very popular on TV right now? Mad Men. Right. We got to get somebody yep. for Mad Men. And so... It is a very kind of like Mad Men inflected movie. Okay, yeah. so they pull January Jones from Mad Men, and then the very sequel to this, they pull you know character actors from Game of Thrones. So just whoever's big on TV, they're just going to capture into this. <laughs> yeah. So Moira sort of like joins this parade of pretty ladies and ends up kind of using the stupidity of dudes to make her way into the secret lair of Sebastian Shaw. It turns out. That is Schmidt now. He is now calling himself Sebastian Shaw. We are now in kind of a big, fancy secret room, huge couches. And here is Sebastian Shaw and Colonel Hendry, who are both in tuxedos. And Emma comes in, in essentially nothing at all, and just kind of sits down with the boys. Right behind them, Moira's sneaking in, doing like some sort of like movie sneaking around as per the Gilligan Accord, where like you crouch behind something for 10 seconds and like you get to witness everything you need and what i don't what are they even talking about they're talking about like putting missiles in turkey colonel henry does not does not want to do whatever it is that they want to do so they they have riptide in the room oh is that his name that he has a name it did they ever say it in the entire movie? no he doesn't say anything as far as i can tell i do not believe that character talks at any point no no he is utterly useless he's a wind guy is what he is he can create wind, which is what he does, and kind of knocks Henry up against the wall. 
Okay, I just thought that he could make tiny little tornadoes. Well, yeah, that's that 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 is that's what I mean. He makes tiny tornadoes. He's the tiny tornado man who stands around most of the time. He doesn't say much, he doesn't do much, but if you need a tiny tornado in the room, he's the guy to have on hand. X-Men's always kind of weird like they just say like, "Oh, it's a genetic mutation allows you to do this." That actually makes sense for some of them, like telepathy, like you can kind of mm-hmm. believe it. Right. Maybe even like flight or, you know, teleportation. But to shoot out tiny little tornadoes, like I don't, I'm not a scientist, but it seems pretty strange <laughs> that human DNA could be manipulated to create tiny little tornadoes. That's actually, I would draw the line like immediately after this, which is when Azazel shows up, who is unexplained. He is a teleporting red devil monster. And definitely the idea that we are just like, one groovy mutation away from turning into teleporting devil monsters who can kill people with his tail. I watched the DVD special features. You know, they color tested all these different colors because they didn't want him to look like the devil. He looks exactly Exactly like the devil. devil. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, they really nailed that. No. Moira tries to call. And so there's a, a scene. I don't really entirely understand this where Moira is trying to call in to the important people who are sitting in an important room having important discussions and tell them that she just saw Colonel Hendry with evil, terrifying devil monsters. She is told, no, Colonel Hendry is sitting right here because apparently Azazel, I guess, teleported him to this big, important meeting. So he was going to miss it because he was in Las Vegas with pretty ladies. But now that scene, that scene escapes me entirely. Colonel Hendry did not know about mutants like five seconds ago. Yeah. He didn't know that there would be even the option to teleport back there. So I think his plan was just to play hooky. Yeah, he was, I know, he was just going to hang out. And, you know, sometimes I skip some unimportant work meetings, but never one where I'm deciding if we're going to put nuclear warheads anywhere. Yeah. That seems like an important one that you'd want to attend. No, so he shows up, I guess he shows up late and he's like, oh, wait a second, hold on, y'all. And he's like the swing vote. He has like the final say. Yeah, we should put him in Turkey. Yeah, no, they were gonna. They were just going on without him. Charles Xavier is drinking a yard of beer. Moira comes in. He tries the same pickup lines, the whole groovy mutation bit, and which is very cute. But she says, "You know what, dude? Horny dude? Like, down boy? Like, I need your help on this." Eric's adventures in Argentina. I'm going to need some explanation from you if you if you can offer any, because you've seen the special features and maybe they explain what the fuck happens in this scene. Eric goes to a bar in Argentina and there's a couple dudes there who are drinking. He gets a beer. There's a picture of Schmidt on the wall that says Miami on it. I don't understand that picture at all. Kevin Bacon and those two other guys, the two guys at the bar in Argentina. Oh, that's the same guys. Those are the same guys. Yeah. Okay. And they're on the like stern of a boat. So it has the boat's name, Caspertina or whatever. Oh, is that and what that is? The port of call, which is Miami. There's a lot of bad effects in this movie. And that Photoshop job of the boat is one of the worst. I didn't even, I don't, I don't think I even saw the boat. Eric could leave right now, right? He sees that picture. He sees that there's a boat and it says Miami and Schmidt is on the boat. He's about to kill several dudes. And then leave. And really, he just he's just gotten all the information off the wall right now. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think this scene is actually my favorite scene in the whole movie. Tell me why. It's just Eric 
getting some good old fashioned Nazi revenge. Just killing dudes. It's short and it's not overly complicated. It's just uses a knife to kill two dudes. One dude points the gun at the other. It's it's what you want Magneto to do. Sebastian Shaw is now on that boat in Miami and he's got sunglasses on and he's very casual. All of a sudden, he's the wolf of Wall Street, I guess. It doesn't really make sense to me why he has a yacht in Miami specifically. It's hard to say because here comes Colonel Hendry who wants money. I don't know why he wants money. It's very important to him that he has money. I feel like they threatened his life with a tiny tornado to get him to do stuff. But apparently they promised him money, which we didn't. I don't know what he wants all this money for. He is so invested in getting that money that he goes all the way to Miami with a grenade in his coat pocket. (laughs) A live grenade, which I guess in the 60s, you could just like get on a plane with a live grenade in your pocket. And that was fine. He wants his money. And he says to Shaw, I want you to give me my money or I pull this pin and we all die. Which is not how we relate to other people. What is he doing? I think the only explanation is that like his mind is frazzled now from like witnessing (laughs) mutants that he's just lost all grasp of reality. (laughs) He's just overreacting to everything. I mean, and so really like the only the only reason why they're doing this, even though it does not make sense is just to demonstrate like what Shaw's power is, which is that he can absorb energy, whatever that means. So he takes the grenade and pulls the pin and blows himself up, but that explosion goes inside of him and he can turn that into power. He says that he can retain energy and it's kept him young, which I guess is... Screenwriting 101. Tell, don't show. He yeah, has to like, know, explain yes. his powers. And then he just... he um. He just murders Colonel Hendry, a very important man who can teleport at a moment's notice into a big nuclear missile meeting, disappears, gets on a plane, goes to this boat, and then disappears forever. As usual in a superhero movie, murder with no consequence. Like, you, it's totally okay. Even a kill, an important authority figure, no consequence at all. We just move on. Charles gives a PowerPoint presentation to some dudes at the CIA, which is apparently not very effective. The CIA gentlemen, they they do not find it compelling. They are not compelled by it. They tell him, thanks very much. And then they turn to Moira and they say, McTaggart, you just bought a one-way ticket back to the typing pool because it's X-Men first class and women. Charles tells him, sit down. You were thinking about pie the whole time. That's kind of one of my favorite moments is like, you were thinking about pie. And he knows they're having, what is it, apple rhubarb pie? Which sounds great. It sounds pretty good. It's an extremely distracting scene for me. When I watch it, I'm just like, man, I wish I had some of that pie. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Go to the CIA, you get amazing pie every day. They're upset that he's a mutant. And then Raven, who's just been sitting there, and I'm not sure they knew who she was. She gets up. Let's not forget that she's already been established as a waitress. So it's not like she's a professor. (laughs) Right. He just brings her along. Yeah. And this is, you know, the 60s. And so like Mm -hmm. this is after the Red Scare and McCarthyism. And so they're they're pretty suspicious of most people. And this is the CIA. This isn't just like. No, this is just like Charles's little sister. She's just going to come along. And so she changes her shape and turns blue. And now they're all impressed. And now this is going someplace. And then Oliver Platt is there in the room. We have no choice but to call him Oliver Platt because his character does not have a name. I believe that he is credited as man in black suit. I don't know why they do that, but they do. 
I think they only cast Oliver Platt because they couldn't let Rose Byrne actually have any power in this movie. <laughs> right. And there's Oliver Platt just sitting there and saying they, they don't know what to do now with these terribly dangerous mutants. And so he just says, oh, I'll take them. I have a facility. Important enough for a facility, but not important enough for a name. Yes, exactly. Then Charles Xavier starts raping people, which I'm going to object to. Moira and her fellow agent are walking down the hallway. Charles just kind of like freezes the dude and just broadcasts to her that he can freeze people. So why don't you come meet us at the parking garage? And there's there's Oliver Platt telling his little story. I've always known that there were people like you out there. I've been the laughingstock of this agency for years, but I knew it. You're going to love my facility. And my question is, why does this guy have a facility? Like, he's been the laughingstock for years, but they gave him a whole bunch of money and a staff. Because he's not a woman. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. Exactly right. Every dude. Yeah, women are in the typing pool, but every single dude gets a facility. What would you do with your facility if they gave you a facility? Oh, you don't even want to know what I'd do with my facility. I do all kinds of things. I have I have plans. Have you ever thought about it? What would you do if you had a facility? Probably one of those boats that's actually like a sky plane, you know, <laughs> hoverboat. Oh no, you can't you can't have one of those. Those go down. A helicarrier? Helicarrier. Oh yeah, helicarrier. Oh, you can't have a hel no, you helicarriers always go down. This is the problem with helicarriers. You can't trust them for a minute. That's what they're there for. But we're about to rape Oliver Platt. They want him to get into the car. And he says, no, I can't take you someplace without telling everybody. And it's a very cute little moment where where Charles says to him, do you want to see another trick? Yeah. Get in the car. Good idea. And he gets in the car. Which is very funny. But it is rape, in my opinion. I just want to get this established that, like, reading somebody's mind is annoying. But if you want to do that, you can. But actively going in and changing someone's mind, like making them do a thing that they would not want to do, is rape. It's just rape. I mean, now we know why Charles's best friend, Eric, eventually wears a helmet that doesn't allow Charles into (laughs) his mind. (laughs) Yeah, people really don't have to hang out with you that long to figure out that actually I'm going to need some kind of like vibranium between you and me. It's, this is going to come up again. It's upsetting to me, and this is going to happen again. It's only acceptable because he's the hero of the movie. But yeah, yeah there's a different telling of the story where he's the bad guy. And that telling of the story is this telling of the story, as it turns out. And now we're on the sea. This is the first of so many sea, sea stories in this movie. Shaw and Emma and Riptide on their little boat, and Eric comes... Emma reads his mind and knows that Eric is there to kill them all. And so she turns into a diamond, which is the thing that she can do. And she socks him and he and he falls off the ship. This sequence is confusing for me. I don't know if you if you understood it, but all of a sudden the Coast Guard is there with all of our friends. I don't know what the Coast Guard is like trying. Why are they trying to arrest Shaw? I guess the CIA has taken control. So Professor Xavier is on the boat. Yes. For some reason, they know that it's possible mutants. And so there's there might have been some deleted scene that. I yeah, I don't get sense, it. But no, it's they just it just kind of happens. Up. Yeah, they show up, happen to show up, obviously, at, this, at the exact same moment that Eric shows up. This is the first of many sequences in this film that take place out on the open water. 
despite the fact that none of their powers are water related. It is bizarre to me how much water there is in a movie that does not have a fish guy or anything. They all have a big fight, I guess. There's some guns and whatever. Charles realizes that there's a telepath on the other boat. Riptide comes along and does like a, a tiny tornado and kind of blows the Coast Guard out of the water. Eric is is splashing around and Charles realizes that there's a magnet dude who's in the water. And Eric, he uses the anchor. They think that, that okay, we've pushed him into the water. He uses his power to make the anchor come up in a way that's very fun to look at and just like like goes through and smashes the boat to their great discomfort. But it turns out that they have a submarine and they get into the submarine. It's like a kind of a double-decker boat, I guess, a double-decker yacht that has a submarine at the bottom. And so they just get into that and they yeah. drive away. They just swim away. <laughs> the, so the director of this movie, Matthew Vaughn, said that one of his inspirations was the early Sean Connery, James Bond movies. Yeah. The first Bond movie, Dr. No, came out in 1962. This movie is set in 1962. So therefore, mm. he's obligated to have a, a Bond pastiche. And there are some there, if you look look at it, some of the, the costuming, some of the, the editing, definitely the treatment of women. That's I think he he pulled that right out of the 1960s. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But like bad guy on a submarine, that's just like, you can't get more nefarious Bond villain than that. You're right. Yeah, that's totally Bond. And so now we see Shaw and Emma and Riptide on their fabulous submarine set. Everyone's wearing white. The set is pastel blue. It's gorgeous. Like, it's actually a really, really beautiful Shaw has a captain's chair right in the middle, like it's the bridge of the Enterprise. And they are they are going to swim away to safety. Eric's still in the water. He's trying to grab onto that sub like it's a, a Nazi coin. He's not having much success. Charles is reading Eric's mind and understands everything about what's happening and doesn't want it to keep happening. And so he's Charles is like telling Eric, calm your mind. I'm going to help you. I know what you're trying to do, but you're about to drown. Charles ends up in the water himself, and then and so he and Eric, this is like their meet cute in the water, kind of saying, like, you're gonna have to let that sub go, and but I'll help you out. And then they introduce themselves in the water, and now they're friends. It's very cute. It is very, very cute. I know. It's it's lovely. It's romantic. This is a very this is like a violent rom-com about doomed romance on the high seas. And this is really where you see that for the first time. I mean, sign me up. I'm gonna buy a movie ticket to that every time. Eric says, I thought I was alone. Everyone keeps saying that constantly throughout the film. It's like a whole group of non-binary people who've never used TikTok. Welcome to our facility. This covert CIA research base. It is kind of confusing what this means. It's an enormous office park. Oliver Platt's been using it to study paranormal powers. And there's all these CIA dudes walking around in black suits. So now Charles and Raven and Eric are working for the CIA. They go and meet Nicholas Holt, beautiful Nicholas Holt, who is playing Hank McCoy, genius and gorgeous person. This movie does a lot of stuff that's just kind of really bad and dumb, but it introduced us to grown up Nicholas Holt. And for that reason alone, it belongs in the Library of Congress. Oh, it really does. I didn't realize that this was his first like big role. It's his, definitely his first blockbuster. He'd been in some other stuff. I mean, he got his start in About a Boy. Right. When he was young. Yeah. And now he's like the funniest, like anything he's in, I'm going to watch. I know he's amazing. Yeah. Captivating. In this movie, he is Hollywood ugly, which means you take a stunning guy, you put crooked glasses on him and you don't let him take his shirt off. And suddenly he's a nerd with self-esteem problems. 
Nicholas Holt is one of those people like James Marsden, where he's so handsome that you can't even really be attracted to him. Because when you look at him, your brain is just so busy trying to deal with the concept that he even exists. Everybody comes into Hank's hangar, I guess, where he's building things. I don't really know. Charles says, oh, my God, another mutant. This is so great. But nobody knew that Hank Hank hadn't told anybody. So he's outing Hank as a mutant. Mm-hmm. Oliver kind of looks at him and, and Hank says, hey, like, you didn't ask, so I didn't tell, which is cute. But like, I used to think about X-Men that partly this was a metaphor for queer people. But watching this film, I'm kind of like, yeah, don't drag me into this mess. I am not an irresponsible, violent Nazi. And y'all need to stop implying that I am. Hank meets Raven and is very excited by her because she's Jennifer Lawrence and she's very beautiful. He shows off his mutant power, which is that he has hands instead of feet. Oh, I thought his mutant power was that he could cure anybody of a foot fetish. (laughs) Shaw and Emma are in another white, very well-furnished room on their submarine. Shaw has been in contact. Emma, they're talking about... The telepath that Emma has sensed, Shaw says, well, the Russians made me this. And he has this helmet, which is made out of vibranium or something like that. And he puts it on. And so then telepaths can't read his mind through this. It is like lead to Superman. We're looking at this helmet and we're like, well, that's not going to be yours for that long because we recognize (laughs) it. Like, dude, that's got an M on it. That's not going to be yours forever. (laughs) It's a little bit insensitive, I feel. That he puts it on right in front of Emma and is like, well, now you can't read my mind either. And he obviously doesn't care what in the hell she thinks because she's a girl. Immediately after this, he just says one of the most misogynistic things in the entire movie. Like she's wearing, again, just like a bikini, a fur bikini. Says, hey, can you go pop out of the submarine into the Arctic air and give me some ice for my cocktail? And she does. I mean, the movie does try to exonerate itself by, you know, January Jones as a little eye roll at the camera, like. (laughs) Oh, men. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. I want to talk about why Shaw, he knows that there is a mutant out there who can manipulate metal, who is very, very angry with him. And he chooses to live in a metal house underwater. <laughs> That's he, a very he, good point. Maybe he just thinks he drowned. I mean, Kevin Bacon's plan is probably the least watertight plan in the history of anything. Any superhero movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a bad one. But just do your due diligence and just make sure that one guy who doesn't like you. Who you know is coming. Meanwhile, Eric's in another part of the facility, stealing the file on Shaw and trying to walk out the door with it. They want a little moment. So this is like kind of a big, important turning point. It's a rom-com moment where Eric is walking away with the file. And Charles talks to him and says... Don't leave here. I've seen what Shaw did to you inside your mind. I felt your agony. This is not a great thing to do. But he's saying, I can help you. You should be part of something bigger. You should have some friends. And so I won't stop you leaving, he says. I could, but I won't. Which is awesome. Like, okay, thank you for that. And then let's him walk away. If you love something, let it go. Let it go. And so with our star-crossed lovers reaching an important turning point in their tumultuous relationship, that is the end of Act 1 of X-Men First Class. Now, I won't make you listen to Act 2. I could, but I won't. But here's what's coming up. Why do you think all the fish disappearing is a bonus for you? How does that help you in any way? I would like to suggest that if your good friend is a telepath, 
that you should not play chess against them. This is the kind of scene where it's obvious that each character has been individually dropped into the room by helicopter. Just the look of dismay that she gives the, the colonel, like she might as well be giving that to the, the director of this movie of just the, like, come on. And now Eric can do anything he wants. So Nazi coins, watch the fuck out. Eric coming for you. All right, so stay tuned for that. Thank you, Trevor. I will see you right back here for Act 2 of X-Men First Class on the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. Thanks for listening.